We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. On the streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking. Somebody needs to take this mic away from you. You never need to hold it again. It's always a hater in the group. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brew Hoop Podcast. This week, of course, a joyous edition following the Bucks retaking the lead in their series against the Boston Celtics 2-1. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com, joined as per usual by Kyle Carr and Riley Feldman on another joyous Sunday as we get prepared for game four of this series that seems to be shifting as, as it goes along here. I, I see, it appears that the longer the you know, more games we play, these teams seem to be becoming more and more themselves, which I think is, is what stand, stood out most to me about game three in particular. The Bucks certainly taking the Celtics to task in the paint in game three. What were some of your uh, big things that you noticed, Riley uh, and then Kyle? First off, does anybody else here just stand during the games? Like, do you have the inability to actually sit down? Because I just paced the entire time. I Sterling stood Brown up, style? Yeah, like, like, just fist at the side. I usually, I don't think Sterling was like yelling and screaming and clapping like every single time or every single possession, but uh, very similar to Sterling. Um, no, I would say you're right that it just seemed like both teams, especially the Bucks, probably more so the Bucks than the Celtics, but like how quickly the Bucks, once they figured it out, like it being the way the Celtics are trying to stop Giannis, it's been pretty much an avalanche ever since. Like even not having Eric Bledsoe, like him all a wall game three, didn't even stop him. Like George Hill steps in no problem. Um, the Bucks are playing like very Giannis centric ball, but Giannis has already adjusted and kind of stepped up to it, whether it be facilitating or, you know, getting around the way that they're trying to scheme him defensively. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. So it seems like we're kind of back to the Bucks of old. If the Bucks of old were whatever we saw this past season, and it's uh, a lot more fun to watch than the Bucks of game one, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, Kyle, what did, uh, obviously, I mean, it's impossible not to get excited following that win. And of course, Giannis has his, I would say probably his breakout game for this series, considering this, the Piston series was sort of a pushover. So what did you sort of see as your major takeaways? Just uh, when, when I think the, the two started? biggest takeaways that I saw was Milwaukee's defense dramatically improving, even though they were still allowing Boston to take their mid-range shots. It was better off that switching it, especially the switching was helping Milwaukee with the defense. They allowed Boston to take those mid-range, but instead of having, you know, Kyrie trying to shoot wide open or a trailing blood so you had Brooke Lopez on him and kind of contesting that shot, or you eliminate the Al Horford pick pops that were hurting them so much in game one. Those are the things that I really noticed the most out of the games. And also Milwaukee still hasn't started a game well. All three of these games they've started slow and it's taken them halfway through the first quarter to really get momentum going. So one of these games are going to have to start off fast. And despite not starting off well, they seem to recover a little bit quicker. Game one, it took them until midway through the second quarter to really get there. Game two, it was more at the end of the first half, not first half, first quarter. While in game three, it was four minutes and they had the lead back down to only one. So I think Milwaukee's adjustments have proven to be the decisive factor. And just forcing Boston to go in colder spells and particularly in the third quarter. That's where the momentum has always shifted for either team in all three of these games is in the third quarter. And Milwaukee has thankfully used that to give themselves a you know, 10, 15, 20 point lead while with Boston, they did that in game one. And that was more the fact that Milwaukee's defense completely falling apart than I think Boston did well. While in games two and three, Milwaukee used their defense to fluster, to force bad shots out of Boston, to force just sole iso ball. Yeah, and I think the adjustments are obviously the prevailing theme of this series to this point. It was the link, most you know biggest lingering question following Game One. You heard us all talk about it. What is what is Bud going to do to make this Bucks team going to be competitive? What are we going to see from him in Games Two and Three? Is he going to earn the contract uh, that we think he deserved, and all of the probably hopefully Coach of the Year awards that we thought he deserved, or is he going to sort of revert back to a lot of the issues that we seem to hear about him rumbling coming in, that he wasn't able to make adjustments in time, 
that he wasn't able to be a tactician in the middle of a series. And uh, a lot of those questions have been answered in games two and three here. So I think we'll touch on that more later, but let's just go over some of the numbers here quick for that 123, 116 bucks win in game three. Giannis, 32 points on an absolutely insane, just 13 shots for that game. 13 rebounds, eight assists. It's rigged. <laughs> it's okay. I, I do not even want to talk about the Celtics <laughs> complaining about the refs. Uh, it's just crazy. Um, two steals for Giannis and three blocks, which was delightful to see. Middleton, who had a tough go of it in the first half and then seemed to heat up. His pull-up his pull up threes are – they're just a killer in the playoffs. There's something about them that just feels like it's, it saps all of the energy out of the room and – um, I haven't tell every single every single time he's gonna do it to you can tell the minute he touches the <laughs> ball like he deliberately just slow walks it up to the three point line does a crossover or two and then tries to do the old fadeaway and usually it goes for whatever reason so and when you're feeling like he is that might be the best shot the Bucks can get is just okay Chris just walk in and take the shot that's yeah that's our best option yeah and I don't have the numbers in front of me but I know there obviously his isolation scoring is way up this year he is one of the best isolation scorers in the league which is crazy also sort of in a in a different way you have to think about the fact that the fact that he was he's a lot better isolation scorer this year was probably going to just lead to this sort of result anyway where when the game slows down in the playoffs he's just going to be able to score at a higher rate he's going to show why he's probably potentially worth the the max money um because in that when games become a lot more half court oriented and you need a guy who's going to bust you out of a potential slump or if the defense is cracked down and you can't really break through so Good to see Middleton break through for for 20 points in that game. Four rebounds, five assists, and three steals, too. I mean, Riley, it feels like just every game, even if he seems like he's struggling, he's able to make a mark on the box score. Yeah, this is like exactly, again, the whole season has been a referendum on can Chris play the way that everybody envisions he can and really impact the game that he would hope to. And like throughout the season, we saw his three-point numbers grow and there was kind of a mix midway through the season of how can we still get him involved because maybe he's not nearly as comfortable with that. But now that the playoffs have come along, like I think he's averaging more three-point attempts than he was even taking during the season and he's still making 54.5% of his three-point shots, which is just insane. Like, that's, And I think he had 61% last season. So just continuing his postseason run, is it's amazing to watch. And then I think his reliability as a scorer is that much more valuable in the postseason just because maybe it didn't come through in game one where, you know, for whatever reason, it seemed like the entire team was thrown off. Whereas games two and three, he's this reliable outlet for Giannis where he can, Giannis can kind of go into the game and say, I'm going to try and be a bit more patient and I'm going to rely on my teammates to kind of pass it out. And when you have somebody like Chris Middleton who can kind of do it all and is willing to kind of position himself on the three-point line and make shots at such a high rate. It's such an awesome release valve to have that I think is as so much more critical in the postseason to make sure the machine runs, especially with tighter rotation rotations and such. So um, it's been fun to watch. And I think uh, he's definitely earning every single dollar. He's probably going to be paid in the uh, upcoming off season with the performance he's had so far this series. Yeah, and then obviously I want to talk about the bench. I, I think the the rest of the stars were fine. Brook Lopez still continues to sort of have a quiet series, uh, just seven points in this one. What Miritich, a quality thirteen points, three for seven from three. That's basically what you can expect from him. Um, but at the bench, the Bucks come in and they outscore the Celtics forty-two to sixteen. That vaunted Celtics bench uh, with uh, Gordon Hayward just getting ten points. He's probably. I mean, he should probably have like five of those points redacted for getting blocked by Arsan Ilyasova too. So <laughs> that's basically like a five-point game for Hayward. That'll um, be in the CBA, the next CBA. <laughs> I bet there's like a filter on NBA.com slash stats that does that where Arsan's blocks are worth minus five. And then Semi Ojolade, a performance for the ages, six points in 11 minutes, five personal fouls, a Thon maker style performance. He was probably watching at home and just being like, mm, I could have fouled more. I could have fouled out faster. <laughs> I could have gotten six. Come on. <laughs> oh, so tough night for semi. But I mean, I, I the standout guy, of course, Kyle is George Hill. I mean, 21 points is hyper efficient. Nine of 12 shooting two for three from three, which is nice. A quiet story in the regular season was that he actually was a little struggling from three compared to his career averages. But I, I think there wasn't a more indicative play of the fact that he was putting his stamp on this game than when he drove past those Boston defenders for the slam down the lane. Yes. First of all, happy belated birthday to George Hill, who just turned 33. 
So that was a pretty nice birthday present, uh, being the clutch guy and dunking on the Celtics. It's still kind of unbelievable that the Bucs were able to get George Hill for John Henson, Delhi, and a first-round pick. And that move was more of a salary cap decision than a, okay, we're going to try and bolster the bench. That still blows my mind. And I don't know if there's anything, if there's going to be a better deal. I think it's a better deal than Miritich deal. That's how George Hill has been fantastic this whole series and this whole playoffs. He's been the key bench guy. He's been the steadying presence. I had said it over on Celtics blog that he was possibly the X factor because Bledsoe, which we'll talk about him later, he's going to be hit or miss against especially Terry Rozier and Kyrie Irving. And you don't really have a backup point guard until Brogdon gets back and Brogdon's still out. Looks like he might come back in game four. Nobody ever knows. But George Hill just stepping in and getting the clutch baskets. And every time Milwaukee needed a basket, George Hill had made some kind of play, whether he was hitting a three or getting a layup or getting the pass over to Giannis, who was able to pass it to someone else. It just seemed like George Hill had the offensive awareness to get the basket that Milwaukee needs. And defensively, his work on Kyrie has been phenomenal in these last two games. And I, I'm running out of words to describe how good he's been in this playoffs. And Pat Connaughton deserves a shout-out as well. You know, it, We were saying after game one, if he can't hit shots, he can't play. Well, he's hitting shots, so that was very helpful. And that's important for Milwaukee, especially with their bench. And if Brogdon comes back, you just have another good option for a guard that you can call on. So I don't know if this is going to be sustainable. As we know, Connaughton is a very streaky shooter. But having those two guys as your bench contributors for the scoring part and Ursan defensively a rim protector is that something that we're going to no talk question about mark on the end of that sir it's rim protector <laughs> with a period so yeah just with that bench performance just those three are able to do it and tony snell had a couple moments looks like he's still maybe half a step or a step behind and the best part is when brogdon comes back you either have brogdon coming off the bench or you have Miritich coming off the bench, both great options for Milwaukee. So it's going to be the bench has picked it up a lot, and that's kind of good because Lopez and Bledsoe haven't really offensively done a lot of damage to the Celtics. Yeah, I would say with George Hill just kind of continuing like his value, it's not, it, it is so much like his actual production, but even if it isn't that, it's just competent minutes when you need it off the bench. Like, like you said, without Malcolm out there, you're kind of SOL if George Hill isn't having a good Nick game. And that's doubly the case if Eric Bledsoe is going to be a wall, like just kind of there, but frozen in place and freezing up on defense and occasionally trying to kill himself, trying to get a layup to go. Um, so I think it's not only impressive that George Hill is out there contributing, but the fact that he's been able to ramp up from like averaging 20-ish minutes a game through during the regular season to like nearing 30 minutes a game to be productive and to give Coach Budenholzer kind of something to paper over the gap that is kind of just there because of Malcolm's absence. And now you don't have the outside pressure of like, well, we're like, we really are not getting anything from the guards right now so we have to try and rush malcolm back like you you now have the luxury of some extra time to give him some more rest and kind of see how long it takes him to get into form so you're not throwing him out there and getting totally roasted and then all your different options are out so um credit to hill not only for contributing but giving giving coach budenholzer a bridge to kind of get over a gap that might sink any other team potentially yeah, and we talked all season long about how all of these fringe moves that John Horst had made had just obviously improved the floor of this roster by an uh, umpteenth amount. I mean, thinking about just the Celtics having to throw out a guy like like Tice for a few minutes, or I mean, even Semi, and I guess that was a, a strategy that Stevens wanted to employ. But I mean, last year, this would have been like Delavadova filling in if there was a, a Brogdon injury. and. <laughs> <sighs> don't need to say any. Don't need to Yikes. say anything more about that. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, George Hill looks like basically a shadow on defense of the guy that he's guarding. It's it's incredible. I can't believe that he's able to do that at his age still. Um, and the athleticism on that dunk, just to be able to cross a guy up and work competently in the pick and roll um, or whatever other sets they're sort of expecting of him, it is just it's invaluable. And then um, obviously a guy who's worked with Bud before, so he's familiar with him from the San Antonio days. So I just think there's a lot of familiarity there and you can't say enough, like you said, Riley of him ramping up the production. Uh, and of course, another guy who sort of ramped up production 
in Tim Frazier three here was uh, Tim Frazier, of course. It is incredible that he, he is going to play throughout the whole dang playoffs. Um, he didn't even get a minute on ESPN, which is ESPN's box score, which is tough for him. But we all know what happened to him. Doesn't Coach and Bud know Connaughton, that the coach, doesn't he know that the coach of the year voting is already done? Like he doesn't have to keep proving a point in the playoffs by having Tim Frazier play each game. Well, good. Who does your attorney just in the minutes, and be like, yeah, are you yeah. kidding me? Like Christian Woods probably yeah. said, like, you, you really couldn't throw me out there for 10 seconds <laughs> at all? Come yeah. on. I mean, Chris, Christian Wood whatever christian would probably think that about like anyone even if we were throwing out like the worst player so i i yeah um so pat Connaughton, anyway he was <laughs> plays for 28 minutes which is pretty high um five for 11 four for nine from three seven rebounds uh, i mean like we said i i mean it's good to see him get the seven rebounds uh i i honestly think that's an underrated part of his game and helping the bucks defensive rebounding numbers not that the Celtics are any sort of offensing re- offensive rebounding dynamos, but when he's showing up on the box score uh, in game one, of course, he, he really had wasn't showing up in any way except for misses, which is always tough to see. Um, but I, I'm happy to eat a little bit of crow on the, the Connaughton takes that we had after game one. Um, but I don't think they were unfair given we just said, I mean, he just needs to make the shots. And I, I think there is a question though, Kyle, and of course Brogdon, Brogdon returning may figure this out, but of how many minutes is too many minutes for content. I mean, 28 minutes in this game. It feels like it's verging on a little high. Yeah, 28 is still a little higher than I would like to see. I would say maybe 20 would be a respectable amount that doesn't hurt the Bucks' performance and keeps... It seems like 20 is the ideal number. But, I mean, if Connaughton's going to shoot that well, then... I guess you can keep playing him. And if and if he's when he's not matched up against Gordon Hayward, he has not been as bad defensively as we have seen. He still gambles too much in a just in a crucial playoff series. But I'd say twenty minutes is respectable. And with Brogdon coming back, I think twenty minutes will be his max because some of those minutes for Brogdon's gonna have to come somewhere. And you know, content playing twenty eight to thirty something minutes is going to get reduced. And Tony Snell might not get five the five minute stint. You might see less Ursan. You might see less um, Miritich just because, again, those minutes are going to have to go somewhere. So 20 minutes, let's say 20 minutes. That That's that's fair. Yeah, I'd say 20 minutes. here first. Right. What was that? Sorry. Sorry, Adam. No, just uh, that you heard it here first. 20 minutes. That's the right amount for Connaughton. Uh, yeah, that, that's listening. the Goldilocks zone for Pat Connaughton is 20 minutes. That's the Goldilocks <laughs> zone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. All right. Well, um, well, I was just going to say uh, on top of that, I think while we talk about all the minutes, it's it's so difficult to determine just because we have zero clue what Malcolm Brogdon looks like. Like maybe 28 minutes is bordering on insane, but if Malcolm's still not 100%, then maybe you just kind of have to ride the dragon and hope it doesn't burn you as it go along. So it may be, I mean, when it works out, like in game three, it's a lot of fun, but you just kind of have to hope that game one is an outlier and you're able to get through the rest of the series running a lot of kind of 10 minutes without it actually killing you. Yeah, speaking of guys who hope a game is an outlier, probably Eric Bledsoe here was hoping game one was an outlier. And hoping game three is also an outlier. Just nine points, four of 15 from the field, four turnovers, um, basically struggling in every aspect of his game in, in game three. And it was pretty clear from the outset, Kyle, that he was forcing the issue. Yes, that's probably the best way to describe it. Last year, he just wasn't trying that hard until game seven. That was the frustrating part of it all was it's not that he was playing poorly, it's that he wasn't even trying. Well, this year he's still playing relatively poorly, especially for his standards, but at least he's trying maybe a little bit too much. You know, taking 15 shots is is high. And I know at one point he had taken 10 shots in the first quarter, at least the first half, while Giannis only had three or four. And that was before all the free throws. So I think defensively, though, he's been great. And I had said throughout game three, he's going to have a moment where he's going to get it together. And that moment that he got it together was that layup at the end when Milwaukee did it, when things were starting to get a little too complacent for the Bucks. And I'm hoping that's going to be a turnaround for him. I think it's just offensively, he wants to try and do as much as he can. And if he's going to be aggressive, that's fine. If he's going to get to the rim and just not hit shots, okay. If he's not going to hit threes, also fine. But 
the turnovers were just sloppy turnovers. The it just seemed like offensively he hasn't found a rhythm yet, and I don't know what the reasoning for that is. I mean, I would say Kyrie's not a lockdown defender, and neither is Terry Rozier. So I think it's just a mental block, especially being in Boston. So hopefully he turned it around, getting that layup at the end boosts his confidence. But offensively he's been struggling. Well, defensively he's still done a great job in the second half of Game Three against Kyrie. You could tell he was willing to die if that's what it took to get that layup to go. Like, he's like, okay, Jalen Brown, one three one zone. He blew past him. He's like, I don't care how violently I fall onto the floor. I'm going to try and get this one to go. So, credit to him. You could tell how badly he wanted just a basket to finally go down. And like, it's it's just baffling to watch because we've been so used to anointing him as like the lead defender du jour on the team, and then you watch him in game three, and just there's multiple times where he gets. It's just like one on one versus Kyrie. Here comes a pick and roll, and like Eric freezes, or like he he gets in like a catatonic state and just stops. Like it's just it's really weird to watch. And then Kyrie gets like an open or shot. He like, or, yeah, or he like gets too excited and shifts out of position and doesn't like maintain discipline defensively. I feel like. Yeah, it's it's. It, I just I I don't know if it's again just the ghost of last year. Like it, it, there's not even this mono mano thing going on with Terry Rozier anymore. Like there's not that out sort of outside pressure. So if, if it's just, again, something that's lingering from a season ago, cause he had like a really solid first round against the Pistons. And it's like th- the playoffs as a whole, he's still above a lot of his like scoring and assist averages from the season. But, um, I, I didn't look at what it was for the series on a whole, but besides game two, he's just been kind of miserable. And we've been helped out by the fact that like we talked, George Hill is out there and kind of Giannis and Chris have stepped up and taken on a lot of the other roles as well. So it's not the end of the world, but it's just, it's weird to see a professional athlete come up against one specific opponent and for whatever re- reason, just totally go haywire. So I agree that you hope that, kind of the final couple of sequences at the end of game three, where he was kind of impacting things like whether if he wasn't scoring, he was like, okay, I'm going to launch myself and go for offensive rebounds or like try and break up things that way. So you kind of hope even if he isn't able to kind of take on the scoring load, he's able to contribute in those ways. And you get through the series without him as, as depressing as that would be. Yeah. And I think when considering Bledsoe, I mean, that Malika Andrews piece on ESPN was, I think pretty good this past week talking about how he gets hella nervous before every game. Like even during the national anthem, he says he's like barely coming down. So I think he might just be like a far more. I mean, I didn't know that much about him coming out of Phoenix. I mean, in reality, the most I knew about him was like that salon tweet where he said he wanted to get out of there. (laughs) It's Uh, a good scouting report to have. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't really know anything about this guy. Um, I mean, he sounds like a family guy. He like he says playing with his kids is like what calms him down before a game. So I mean, by all accounts, he seems like a good guy. Um, but but I'm you know for someone to be that candid about being like, yeah, I mean, I get freaking nervous as heck before a game before I have to run out there. So uh, you know who knows? I mean, I think the longer this playoff run goes, hopefully the more you hope he gets he gets used to it or or calms down or feels comfortable playing within himself. Uh, I think game two obviously was the. Uh, basically what the, the the salad days of, of what we would expect for Eric Bledsoe. I think it looks a little better than it typically might just because he went like three of five from three. And if he gets nine points off threes, I think that's a pretty darn good night for Eric Bledsoe, especially considering most of them are like pull-ups that he does. And I think he got a, he, had, so he took some certainly ill-advised pull-ups in this game. Uh, but it, I, I mean, from the outset, I was more excited like you, Kyle, like you said, Kyle, to see him coming out aggressive as opposed to being passive, particularly in Boston, where you knew he was going to be facing a just hellacious crowd ready to ready to rain down upon him. Yeah. And, so, you know, I think with the other players with Bledsoe, other than George Hill, Pau Gasol, I guess, this is the farthest that most of them have gotten in a playoff series. If you really think about it, like Giannis never got out of the first round. Chris never got out of the first round. Um, Tony Snell he got out of the first round when he was in Chicago that one year, I guess, but he wasn't really a big piece of it. But it's a lot of those guys haven't made it this far into the playoffs besides George Hill and Pau Gasol and maybe Nikola Mirotic. So for them, it's there is that inexperience. There is that extra pressure that they might not be used to. So that could explain, you know, Bledsoe's nervousness as well. But I think... I think he's going to bounce back in game four. Um, he's not... I don't think... Kind of like what you said, Adam. Shooting three or five from three isn't 
that likely, but I think he's going to get better layups. Maybe get to the line a little bit more, shoot a little bit better from the free throw line, which I hope everyone on the Bucks do because they've been really bad in the free throw line the past few games, which is a little concerning, but it's going to be something to keep an eye out for. And it's reasonable to be kind of nervous about it, but I think at the end of the day, he's so critical to what this team does that you kind of just have to keep the faith, keep riding him, and hope he works it out eventually because maybe somehow the Bucks are able to get through this series without having to have him contribute in a big way, but at some point he's going to have to have his head on straight. And, you know, it's frustrating to watch from home that it's like, wow, this, I can't believe this is happening for a second year in a row, but you kind of have to just grit your teeth and get through it if you're going to have him kind of be locked in for the... Eastern Conference Finals and anything beyond as well. Yeah, totally agree. Shameless plug. I wrote a piece to that effect on brewhoop.com. Um, <laughs> like also, spe- yeah, so speaking of, you were talking about, Kyle, about these guys haven't been that far in the playoffs, trying to figure out where they're going to go. I think we have done a disservice by not talking enough about Giannis, in particular his third quarter performance, when once again, just like in game two, he seemed to just bully the Celtics as his, as he pummeled his way to the rim and got to the free throw line. Riley, I think this was most adroit in Game Three. Is that the Bucks sort of returned to being the Bucks in the paint? So they outscored Boston fifty-two to twenty-four, shot seventy-one percent in the paint. They were around sixty-six percent in the paint for the season. Boston only shot forty-four percent in Game Three, uh, and then you know the Bucks had hadn't quite gotten to their season average in the other two games and had were outscored or barely outscored the Celtics in Game One and Game Two. So I really think Giannis obviously is the catalyst for this team, but I don't think there's anything more important than him being able to figure out this Boston defense in game three here, where he was, he just imposed his will in the third quarter and turned the, turned the course of the game. Look, I'm not the type who toots his own own horn, except all the time. Did I not say (laughs) on last week's podcast that all it would take would be small adjustments offensively and he'd figure it out. Did I not say that? Come on, you can play the tape, but I think I'll, yeah, I'll I'll put that in here. Yes, please please do put that in the notes that Riley was right. Um, I think it's <laughs> it, it's it, what was so jarring about Game One is like it's been so long since we saw Giannis that thrown off by a defensive scheme. Like every single team that we go up against is like, okay, we're just gonna either they leave somebody by themselves, like a la Rudy Gobert, and then Giannis is, Giannis just eats that dude alive, or they form the human wall and Giannis pass out passes out of it, and like. Maybe it was he was so gassed up going into game one. Like like we said, this is the farthest he's gotten the team since his tenure with the Bucks. And like, you know, at the bigger stage, he wants to prove himself and he's just forcing things. And game two and game three, he dialed it back. Like he's still the dominant interior scorer that we've, you know, gotten used to seeing. But now he's getting the fall, fouls are kind of going his way. And it's not so much here comes three guys. I'm going to try and force my way through them. Either he does it intelligently or he passes it out to whoever the open shooter on the perimeter pass, pass, pass on the outside. And it opens it up either out there or somebody else can kind of cut into the paint. And there comes some more points that way. So um, I think it's all credit to him. Just the fact that he returned to the way that we know he can play and he's doing it at such a high level again, where it's like 32, 13 and eight. Like that's, that's a crazy stat line to have. And it was like whole hump for him. Like as we've gotten used to throughout the entire season, it's like the eight assists is what I, I think is most critical because it's, it's not even just he's dominating the Celtics and getting to line over and over again. He's keeping it top of mind. Like all these other guys got to get involved and I can rely upon them. So it's uh a joy to watch and makes it, even though I pace during the entire game, it makes it a lot more comfortable knowing that Giannis is in the zone and, you know, he's going to be out there for 40 some minutes, just dominating the way that we know he can. Yeah. And I think his, I, I think his progression and you talked about the eight assists being the most important, his progression through this series has been an excellent sort of microcosm of his career where he, he slowly figures things out more, more and more, and then he stacks them all together and decimates whoever his opponent is. So, Obviously, game one, he struggled. Game two, he really found his way to the free throw line, recovered in terms of points, four assists in that game. But it was really the the sort of ability to read and react in game three that stuck out to me. And, and Kyle, the more and more that he was able to find open shooters uh, on the perimeter or guys cutting to the basket, it felt like Boston's defense just was crumbling down like uh, the wall in Game of Thrones. Bad person to throw that to in terms of reference. Uh, sure. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, <laughs> like those dragons, love those dragons. Yeah, that dragon and the uh, and a dagger. Um, <laughs> I got that one. Um, with the third quarter adjustments, it 
it was one of those where Giannis figured it seemed like in the game two, it all just became crystal clear for Giannis. He saw the opportunities and was able to pickpocket it. And during game two, it was, I'm just going to find all these shooters and they're going to hit shots. While in game three, it was, I'm just going to go to the hoop. I'm going to go for a layup. I'm going to get fouled and they're actually going to call the foul. So I'm just going to go to the line. And, you know, you just kept going at the rim and going at the rim and going at the rim. And it's just like Boston couldn't not follow him. Every time he was going over that, they were hacking on there, trying to slow him down. Because really, the best way to slow Giannis down is to hack him and hope that the refs don't call it or he misses free throws, which he did both. On game one, he didn't call it. Game two, he was in three, he was missing the free throws. So it was that ability. And I think there was a tweet where there's one point where in transition, there's four guys surrounding Giannis. And all he had to do was drop off a pass to Tony Snell, who was right in the dunker spot and gets the layup in. That's the kind of stuff that Milwaukee is going to thrive on. And that's what makes their offense so good is when Giannis has that gravity that no one else besides Steph Curry has had. He, and it's in a whole different kind of gravity to it. It's more, it's the Giannis can draw a couple guys because he, even though he can't shoot it, you still have to reach, slow him down before he gets a full head of steam, get into the rim. And if you don't react quick enough, he's just going to be able to whip a pass to someone in the corner, or he's kind of going to throw it to a trail guy or kind of like what we saw in the Tony Snell layup. He can just dump it over people because he's just taller than them. And I think that was the big adjustment was that Giannis was just able to pick his spots. And instead of trying to constantly make a play and feel like he had to force it, he just let the defense come to him, and he was able to react accordingly. And that's, I mean, yeah, eight assists is huge, and it helps when, you know, those assists are made threes that happen. But I think it's just more the general demeanor and the ability that Giannis has to get everyone involved and to kind of control the game in his own way, just have the whole court as his own painting, and he's able to put whatever color he wants on it. As you said, Kyle, it was so obvious, like the very first possession of game two, it was like Giannis was immediately looking to make the pass from the top of the key. Like that was over and over again, like from as he got more comfortable, it was like, okay, I'm not going to rush right into the paint and try and make this happen. He was very deliberate, like even if it wasn't to an open shooter per se, or like, you know, his usual driving kick, he's like, I'm just going to pass it. And it was like, he was doing like weird curve balls. It was crazy to watch, but um, it's got to be just uber depressing to be the Celtics because what what are you going to do like maybe a year ago you could get by like okay maybe Chris Middleton and Giannis are going to kill us but at least they have to rely on Jason Terry for 25 minutes whereas this year it's like the, the quality of the rest of the roster is so much higher that even if you know you are able to kind of work your thing like okay we're just gonna let Giannis and unfortunately Chris Middleton roast us alive again like everybody else has to beat us but then everybody else is beating you. Like there, there really isn't any sort of adjustment I can think of off the top of my head that they could hope to do. That would be like really effective at derailing the groove. The bucks are back in again. Yeah. I was thinking that exact same thing in the outline. I was trying to think of potential adjustments the Celtics could make. And uh, I bitch to the ref some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, make it, and make it more of a thing about complaining about the refs and hope that you kind of get another game one whistle. Like that's really the only viable option I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, it sure seems that way. And I mean, for a team that literally doubled their typical free throw rate in a game, I don't think they had a whole lot to complain about, particularly when they got like 17 free throw attempts in the fourth quarter. Uh, and you were, you were talking about what sort of adjustments they could made, make, Stevens made an adjustment in game three. His his big adjustment was honestly putting Semi Ojale in. Uh, Aaron Baines only plays two minutes. And clearly, as we illustrated earlier, it didn't quite work uh, having Semi play that many minutes. Not to mention the fact that, I guess just fundamentally, I think about the idea of, of putting in a guy like Semi who hasn't played that much this season. Uh, refs don't probably know his game that well, like they would know Al Horford or even like respect him that much. And so, yeah, he's had success against Giannis, but like, the idea that like refs refs are just definitely going to call anything like even remotely close to a foul. It feels like on semi Ojale in the playoffs, like he is going to get zero benefit of the doubt as, as opposed to Al Horford. Yeah. And they like, they were able to get through somewhat cause he made two out of three threes inexplicably, but like every single possession down, it was like, okay. And there comes semi and there's the foul and there comes semi and there's the foul. Like maybe he is a good defender, but he just, 
throwing him out there like, you know, a raft without a life preserver or whatever and just hoping he can get through without causing too many fouls or causing that much of an issue. It feels like an ill-timed, like, desperation strategy for sure, which is uh, interesting that we're only in game three and they're already kind of going to that as the potential fix. And if that's not going to work, then I don't know where you go from there. Yeah, the only other thing I was thinking about, Kyle, was the fact that, I, I mean, they I haven't looked at the lineup data, but it does not feel like they played Aaron Baines and Al Horford together almost at all, despite that being their prevailing tactic in round one. And I understand where they're coming from. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They want to be able to get super switchy against the Bucks, but it feels like that could be the last card they could play, considering they had such uh, success that way in the first round. And I mean, maybe then you have two sort of burly rim protectors at the rim uh, that's going to make Giannis have to be, uh, you know, even even more whip smart about his passes and the guys around him have to be even better about hitting their shots. Well, I think with the Boston rotation, it was just an odd decision to put Samuel Jolie in and also Daniel Tice, like Aaron Baines not playing was odd. It's one thing if you're going to try Samuel Jolie because he's a supposed Giannis stopper. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> the meme is dead. The meme is thank dead. Thank goodness. And getting crossover by Tony Snell. That should just end it. No more Samuel Jolie is a Giannis stopper nonsense. Getting crossover by Snell and getting just crushed by Giannis and five fouls. But the fact that Daniel Tice was in instead of Aaron Baines, that was a little confusing. I don't know what Stevens was trying to do or if he's going smaller to force Milwaukee to go smaller. I don't know. Maybe just thought Al Horford can handle it on his own. But if he gets in foul trouble, it's something that's going to be, I think Stevens going to fix for game four. I think Baines is going to play more because he still has that pick and pop ability. Also, maybe that's why when the Bucks adjusted and started switching, there's no need to play both Aaron Baines and Al Horford at the same time offensively. Well, defensively, it it puts you at a risk if you know you put Giannis out there with Miritich and Ursan and Brooke Lopez. You're spacing, you're still spacing the floor out to the point that it kind of you need to go smaller to keep up with that speed. So it's going to be something that Stevens is going to adjust to. But the Bucks really just has to keep doing what they've been doing in games two and three with their switching and even going with the one five switch with. Lopez on Kyrie as that's again that has been a key factor why Kyrie is shooting so poorly and Boston's third quarter offense gets into a rut yeah and I, I was just going to bring that up I mean we talked we've talked about some of the potential adjustments Boston could make but I think more importantly are the adjustments that we've seen Bud make in games two and three definitely switched one through four uh, almost a ton in game two and went all the way to the to one through five in this game you saw Brooke Lopez on Kyrie as you mentioned Kyle a couple different times I think a lot of the national people might not necessarily know that Brooke Lopez actually is like a surprisingly good switchable center. I mean, there was a couple times, there was at least one possession where I saw him basically lock up Kyrie, which is insane. Uh, but I think Riley, we have to be incredibly, I mean, at least for me personally, I was pretty hesitant to be like, Oh, is, is Bud going to make the adjustments after game one? And then all of the rhetoric at, at practice was basically, we need to play with more energy and effort. Uh, a little PTSD for all Bucks fans there. <laughs> and so, so I mean, it, it was very surprising to me the amount of adjustments that we saw made in game two and the fact that he continued tinkering in game three. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you ask Kyle, Kyle kept the faith throughout. So uh, Kyle's exempt from this discussion, <laughs> but I for sure was, uh, I was a little worried after game one. Like, and I, I think it's reasonable for everybody to have been worried because the bucks haven't gotten smacked like that the entire season especially on their home court and like you know how depressing for that to happen in game one for the first time you've been in the second round for 20 years um so i suppose i probably should have uh taken some more uh cal car prescribed meds and calmed down a little bit because you know got to keep the faith got to keep on the hype train but um i think it's it's notable if not just for this series but just in general like it it Maybe the rep of Bud being like, oh, he, he doesn't adjust. Like, I think maybe when I was thinking, I was like, wow, he like literally makes zero changes to his lineups or something. Like, I, I guess I don't really know what I expected that to mean per se, because you got to figure coaches adjust like at least a little bit to some extent from like game to game in a series. But um, the fact that he's been willing to throw out something like the switch scheme that came in the third quarter, that just really, I mean, it, it eviscerated Boston offensively in the third quarter of game two. Um, and like, I don't know if it's probably not him feeling desperate per se, because the first half of game two wasn't really great, but like game, like Kyle said, both of the third quarters kind of broke things open. So I don't know if it's so much desperation as like, 
he doesn't feel nearly as comfortable throwing out a system that the team hasn't really worked on throughout the season. It's like, okay, I guess we're just gonna have to try and give the switch to see what happens out there. And it happened to work to, you know, great success for the Bucks. So um, I guess I feel a lot better about, not that I doubted Bud as a coach, but just, you know, you hear all these narratives and everybody knows that Brad Stevens is an awesome tactical coach, game to game, kind of finding adjustments to kind of, maximize his roster and kind of what they're able to do. So um, I think it's a combination of Milwaukee has such, such a higher talent level than they did a year ago. And they have a deeper roster that like, even if you have to run out a switch scheme that you haven't worked before, you have the confidence in a lot of the guys that you have in the roster, be able to get it done. And of course, all of them were able to actually have it happen. So um, I agree that game one, I was rattled, but uh, I'm, I'm fully confident that we're going to win the rest of the way out and get out of here in five games. Yeah. And Kyle, honestly, I was the switching. It was an interesting adjustment. I mean, I wasn't that surprised by it. It seemed like everyone was basically calling for it. Uh, and we, we, I mean, we'd seen the Bucks do it. We had seen them do it against the Hornets quite a bit. We'd seen them install packages. We had heard, but basically go on the record and say, yeah, you know, I don't necessarily like switching. Uh, but my assistant coaches are pushing me. They're telling me we're going to have to do this. We're going to need it in the postseason. So, uh, and obviously now we see them be able to pull it out and, and, and play with it with a really high level of competency. But I want to talk a little bit more about the game three adjustment, which was tightening the rotation. So it was basically down to eight people. Tony Snell played six minutes, bless his soul, but uh, it didn't look like he was really ready to be out there. It didn't look like this is not the time to ramp him up to game speed. But I, I think that is something that, seemed like it was most non-fundamental to what Bud was espousing as a coach. He's like, yeah, I want everyone in my offense to get a ton of shots. I want to go deep on the bench. I trust everyone to be able to do what they're going to do. I mean, he was playing and uh, you know, I think that spilled over into the postseason. He saw a ton of success with uh, running around like a nine man rotation in the Piston series. And uh, he was doing that for the first game one and game two, but I mean, I think benching Sterling Brown was a pretty big move on his part, considering he was starting just two games ago. Well, first of all, all I want to say is, listen to me now. Believe me later on. Boom. As I said after game one, it will be fine. Multiple times I said that. (laughs) And those that jumped off of the hype train stay off the hype train. Maybe I'll be nice and consider some of you to come back on. But um, with the real it was tough because Bud had gone with nine, 10 player rotations in the Detroit series. But we can all agree that that Detroit series, even though it was the playoffs, it never felt like a playoff game. It still felt like regular season. And then going into game one, and I saw a tweet on this. I don't remember who tweeted it, so I apologize. But someone had said Bud kind of treated game one as we've been doing this all season has worked. We did it the last series and it worked. Let's just keep going and see if it works. And then it didn't. And Bud had to make adjustments, which I don't know why there's this much worry that Bud was going to do any adjustments, but putting Miritich in the starting lineup, that was the first adjustment we saw. And not playing Sterling, even though he had played well the last couple weeks and even the first, you know, the first round against Detroit, it was still a decision that we have to do. Something has to change, and Sterling just wasn't up to the task. I thought Conton wasn't going to be playing, but he's been playing and playing well. But shortening the rotation was a key factor, and it's something that you know I think Budenholzer realizes, and the staff pushing him to do it is good because at least it shows that he's willing to listen. He's willing to learn. He's willing to make whatever adjustment it takes, and he has that. I guess he still has the pride that he's going to still tinker with it in his own way but he's going to be open to suggestions and yeah, he might not like switching, but he also wants to win. And if that means that switching is going to give him a win, if it's working, then he's going to do it. So I think the rotation being tighter is both a good and bad thing just because it's good that you have those eight players that are going to be there, but then you kind of have this issue now that when Brogdon comes back, if you still want to keep eight guys and you have to not play someone and that someone's, probably going to be content and what happens if Brogdon is kind of like Snell where he's not up the game speed just quite yet then you kind of open that Pandora's box and start throwing a little bit of things in, in, into chaos and it's going to be an interesting development of what happens but it's going it's a good thing that Bud is willing to make whatever adjustments is needed I think uh looking back on it the switch from Sterling to Miritich was like 
super obvious just because coming out of game one, we all kind of said like, it's, it's not so much the defense. That's really a big problem. It's probably like, it's annoying that the Celtics gets the shots that they want, but the more, the bigger issue was like offensively. And, you know, Sterling's had a good season shooting from three, but his game isn't necessarily like just catch and shoot threes. Whereas that's a lot more of Miritich's game where you're able to kind of insert him into the lineup and where before you might be playing with, you could try a four out one in system with Giannis being the guy in the inside, but it's not nearly as effective when you have both Eric and Sterling who aren't necessarily shooters per se, and you're swap that out and make it a little bit more balanced towards the way that you would ideally like to play. So I think there's that. Um, and then I, I'm not worried too much about working the uh, minute allocation once Brogdon comes back, just because I think, as you were saying, Kyle, once Bud kind of finds something like finds a vein that works, it seems like he's just willing to keep riding it as long as it's able to. So, um, I think I would it would be shocking if Malcolm even came back as long as we continue to get like maybe if there's another brutal loss, then maybe he comes back. But otherwise, I think at least for this series, they're probably gonna keep going with this eight man group and then see if they can get through. And if not, then maybe you throw another guy out there. But uh, any sort of adjustments I would expect to come during the next series against either Tor- uh, Toronto or Philadelphia. Oh, okay. So you're just saying you're not worried about Brogdon in terms of this series, but no, 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 no. Yeah, I mean like going forward. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so tough. Concern, you mean like whether or not he'll be capable okay, of playing so I, or? So, so I bring it up because did, uh, I'm not sure if either of you listened to the Stan Van Gundy, Zach Lowe podcast from this past week, but uh, I, Van Gundy gave a really interesting anecdote about during his Orlando season, I think when they went to the finals and Jameer Nelson was basically injured. And he had to try and find a way to get Jameer Nelson to come back, who had been like their, obviously their point guard all season, presumably if he can play at his best, he will raise their ceiling to the highest ceiling that's possible. And I think the same sort of applies for Brogdon. I think he probably has a less pivotal role than what Nelson probably had that year for Orlando. But Van Gundy was like, I had to, I had to try and figure out a way to work Nelson in. Uh, I, people have, you know, been like talking to me for years about why wasn't Nelson starting? Uh, why were you trying to work with, I think it was like Ray for Alston or something. Why were you letting him keep running? Um, but I just think it presents like a really interesting quandary to try and figure out like how many minutes are right for Brogdon. What if he doesn't look right? Uh, when's the time to ramp him up? I, I, I mean, it seems like best case scenario, honestly, is if he's feeling okay, Bucks, if they win the next game, then there's a lot less pressure. It feels like at home to try and win a game. So you could let Brogdon kind of get his feet underneath him. Yeah, it is. I don't envy Budenholzer and the staff whatsoever, just because like, I think I said it last week as well. Like it's difficult writing that fine line between tinkering and like just grasping at things and kind of throwing things out there just for the sake of throwing them out there and getting something better than whatever you work with previously. So um, I'll go, I'll, I'll stay confident that whether, you know, whatever the signals they're giving out externally about how far along he is or how good Malcolm looks, um, they'll have a pretty good idea of how he's feeling physically. And you would hope, and obviously Malcolm probably wants to come back and contribute, but you would hope he would be, you know, communicative with the staff to let them know, here's, you know, what percentage I'm at and here's, you know, what I think I could contribute or what I can give. And you kind of figure it out internally. So I would agree Ideally, if you have kind of a quote unquote throwaway game, um, not that there's such a thing in the playoffs, but a throwaway game to see if he's back to speed. Um, and again, it's that's that tough balance. Do you try and get as much rest between this series and the next by finishing it as quick as possible? Or so I, I don't know. It's difficult. I don't have an answer to it. I'm, I'm confident that they'll figure it out at some point, but to expect Brogdon to come back and kind of you know, being hitting a hundred percent, I think would be unrealistic and it'll probably be frustrating when he first comes back just because we know what he's capable of. But um, again, it's a tough task for everybody to kind of deal with. Well, I think it helps that Brogdon isn't, and I don't want to say he's not important, but he wasn't as important to this Bucks team as Jameer Nelson is to that Orlando team. Because that Orlando team, he was the second most important player behind Dwight Howard. So you kind of, you don't have to rely on Brogdon as much. You have the ability to ease him into it, especially in that guard position where you have Bledsoe and Hill and hopefully Connaughton playing well enough that you can you can still ease Brogdon into it. I think getting Brogdon as close to 100% by the end of the series would be ideal. But, you know, it is it is a luxury that Milwaukee does have other options that they can go to and still allow Brogdon to get that time. And I don't think it's really going to be tinkering. I think it's just going to be Let's see what happens. He's talented. All he has to do is hit a couple shots. Like if he can stick with 
players defensively and hit a couple threes, that would be a win. I We're not going to expect him to be his normal get to the rim and finish with high ability yet because I think with a foot injury, he's still going to need to find his legs and maybe with a shooting, that might be the same case. But you can still ease him into it and maybe that 10 to 15 you know, area in game four. And then if you get, once you get to game five, you can maybe try and get up to 20. And if he's ready for it, then game six. And if there is, if there is a game six and seven, eight, that's when he can try and push that 30 to 35 range, which I expect that he would get if he was 100% healthy. So it is kind of nice that he, while he's important, he's not so important that you have to try and force, force the issue. Shout out George Hill. Absolutely. <laughs> Shout out George Hill. Well, I think there's a. I think that's really interesting points to watch going forward. How will Eric Bledsoe bounce back from Game Three? Uh, when will Melko Brogdon potentially be available? Um, so I, there's. Will Tim Frazier play again? We can only. I mean, that's probably yes. a certain. Yes, yes, that's a so, yes. That's a lock. <laughs> yes. Oh, of course, that's a that's a lock. Well, uh, let's let's close this one out with uh, with predictions. How the rest of this series would go? Because I think next time, next game, if it went to game. Game seven, it would be next Monday. So we won't pod until then, I believe. So, Riley, what's your prediction for the rest of this series? I think and it'll probably end up going six games, I think. I think the Bucks will take one more in Boston. I don't think they'll have to go all the way to game seven, but I'm not sure. It, it's so tough to tell. It's just because the Bucks did kind of get lazy at the end of game three. So how realistic is that close score? Like, is it for real? Because it was pretty much 15 to 20 point difference up until like the final couple of minutes. So um, I think it'll go to six games. I think the Bucks will probably lose tomorrow and then win the one at home and win the one on Friday as well. So by the time next time we're recording, we'll be onward previewing the next series. Yeah, I think I'm in the same. I'm in the same boat as Riley. I think Milwaukee has a close loss on Game Four. You know, maybe they just are. I think it's going to be a cold shooting day. I don't know why. I just have like a bad feeling. It's going to be a cold shooting day, and Boston does just enough. And I think the refs are going. Even though the refs aren't going to be terrible, I think there's been enough bitching on Boston's part that maybe a couple of those foul calls will go the other way. So I think it's going to primarily be Milwaukee isn't going to hit shots. So they lose game four, come back in game five. The crowd's going to be energized. That's going to power them through. I see another 10-point victory and then went game six. I think they close things out. And yeah, back summer record, we'll be looking to see who survives between Philly and Toronto. Well, I was going to say the same thing as you guys, but that's pretty boring. So uh, <laughs> I guess I'll say Bucks win tomorrow. Um, and then maybe they drop. I think they could drop one on their home court. Um, I think Boston might feel with their backs up against the wall. They might finally come out to play again and maybe potentially figure something out, have a hot shooting night or something. And then I think Bucks close it out back in Boston in game six. Um, I'd originally thought it might go seven, but it feels like the Bucks are starting to play more like themselves and, and really starting to dominate this series. So I guess we'll have to stay tuned though. And uh, you should definitely stay tuned to brewhoop.com. We'll have plenty of coverage We've already had plenty of coverage throughout the playoffs and we'll have plenty more going forward. And of course, Brian will drop his film room analysis on Thursday mornings. That's another podcast on the brew hoop feed. Make sure you review us, subscribe, share it with all of your friends, watch Kyle's periscopes on the brew hoop, Twitter following every single game. Make sure to follow at brew hoop. That's the place you got to be if these games are going on. So thank you again for listening and we will talk to you again next time. streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking